Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We are shifting gears from Christology to talk about the Desert Fathers and Mothers. These were people that decided to leave the city and go off alone or in communes to practice spiritual disciplines and asceticism. They denied themselves pleasure in their pursuit of sanctification and spiritual warfare. Today we'll go over four early founders, including Anthony, Pacomius, Basil, and Benedict. Although this subject may seem somewhat tangential to the main arc of early church history, as it turns out, these monks exercised a huge influence on Christianity at large. Here now is episode 497, Early Church History 15, Monasticism from Anthony to Benedict. So what I want to cover is four monks. That's what monasticism means. It means the people that live as monks or nuns, really either one. So you have Anthony the Great, you have Pacomius the Great, you have Basil of Caesarea, also called Basil the Great, but you know, I thought it was like kind of getting used up there. And then you have Benedict of Nursia. So these are the four that I want to cover with you in this session. And my hope is that we would be able to get an understanding of what this whole movement was all about. And so what I'm going to do is really focus more on the bookends here. I'll cover all four, but I'm going to quote somewhat extensively from Anthony, or the life of Anthony, and then from Benedict's rule, and really try to give you a feel for why would somebody want to go live by themselves in the desert? Maybe some of you who are more introverted will say, well, why wouldn't you? That sounds like paradise to me. (laughs) But I want to explain the spiritual reasons behind it, not just personality. So let's begin with Anthony the Great, also called Antony, especially if you're British. But in America, we tend to call him Anthony. He was born in 251 in Lower Egypt. And we have a biography about him from a man named Athanasius. You remember Athanasius? He wrote a biography about Anthony, and it was a bestseller. It went viral. As much as something could go viral in the 4th century, this book was read by everybody. And it was really, really influential. Anthony was one of the earliest hermits. So a hermit is a special type of monk who lives alone. And though he was not the first one, because when he goes out, there are others already there. But he's considered the father of monks because he was the most famous of the earliest hermits who went out into the desert, away from the city in Egypt, and lived in this kind of way. So let me tell you his story. Both of his parents died when he was a teenager, left him the family inheritance, had considerable wealth, and he cared for his younger sister. At church one day, they were reading the scripture where Jesus said to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Anthony said, that's talking to me. I'm going to do that. So he went, he sold his possessions, he gave to the poor, and then he set up his sister, because she was younger, and he was responsible for her because his parents were gone. 
He set up his sister to live with the virgins in a convent, basically taken care of by the local church, and had some money set aside for her, gave away everything else, and began patiently training himself. So he became a hermit. Now I'm going to give you some vocabulary here. There are two more specific words that we typically use in church history than hermit. Hermit is just anybody that doesn't go out, really. Somebody that's always uh, isolating is a hermit. The more technical term for it is an eremite or an anchorite. These refer to people who live alone, individuals that live alone for religious reasons. You could have it in different religions, but uh, it got really popular in Christianity in this period in the third century when Anthony the Great was doing his thing. So he goes out to the desert, and uh, he's working with his hands to make things, and then you sell it, and then use that money to give some to the poor, and the rest to buy bread and salt and water. Well, he, he just got water. He didn't have to, they didn't have bottled water. Nobody thought to sell water in the ancient world. <laughs> Anyhow, he began to be tempted by the devil. And this is really important to understand early monasticism, is the role that the hermits have in fighting with demons. So I'm going to read to you from Athanasius' book, and this is what he says about Anthony. He says, The devil attempted to lead him away from the discipline, suggesting memories of his possessions, the guardianship of his sister, the bonds of kinship, love of money and of glory, the manifold pleasure of food, the relaxations of life, and finally, the rigor of virtue, and how great the labor is that earns it. So he raised in his mind a great dust cloud of considerations. And Anthony was able to overturn these temptations to go back to the city through prayer and through discipline. So that's sort of round one. It's not a big, difficult round, but that's round one, Anthony versus the demons. We'll go to round two now. Are you ready? Here's round two. The one hurled foul thoughts, and the other overturned them through his prayers. The former resorted to titillation, but the latter, seeming to blush, fortified the body with faith and with prayers and fasting. And the beleaguered devil undertook one night to assume the form of a woman and to imitate her every gesture solely in order that he might beguile Anthony. But in thinking about the Christ and considering the excellence won through him and the intellectual part of the soul, Anthony extinguished the fire of his opponent's deception. So uh, round two was lust, and uh, he was able to overcome that, and he stayed out there in the desert by himself. Well, actually, he trained with a few older people first and, and learned how to do it, but then he was off on his own. His daily regimen was uh, something like this. Usually, he stayed up as late as he could. So you, want, you don't want to sleep too much. You're an ascetic. That's the whole idea. You're denying yourself bodily pleasure. So he often stayed up all night, in fact. At once, every day, he would eat. And it was after sunset. But he also often fasted one or more days. So he was doing the intermittent fasting before that was even cool. And then he was doing like regular fasting on top of it. And he would eat only bread with salt, nothing else. And he drank water and he slept on a mat of rushes sometimes. 
more off, that was when he was feeling like, uh, you know, treat yourself. That's when you sleep on the mat. Other times he slept on the ground more often. So then we had round three with the devil. He had moved to a cemetery. He found a nice tomb, and he moved into the tomb and had a friend that brought him some food and agreed to bring food every once in a while and shut him inside. So he was just in there in this tomb, probably like a cave type of a, a tomb, not like buried in a coffin or anything. But you need enough oxygen, obviously, or else you have problems. Um, and this is the, the epic description of, of this battle scene between Anthony and the demons. Are you ready? Here we go. Approaching one night with a multitude of demons, he whipped him with such force that he lay on the earth, speechless from the tortures. The friend came the next day, bringing him the loaves. Opening the door and seeing him lying as if dead on the ground, he picked him up and carried him to the Lord's house in the village and laid him on the earth. So this is really interesting. So he, the demons physically beat him, allegedly, so that he's, he's just unconscious on the ground. And his friend comes probably to bring him food, just check up, check up on him. And there's Anthony, and he's just like passed out, and he's like trying to see if he's alive. And so he carries him home, and at midnight, Anthony wakes up, and he looks, and there's all these people all around him, and he, and he finds his friend, and he says, bring me back. I'm not done yet. Bring me back to the tomb. So he goes back to the tomb, and his friend shut the door, and we get round four. Again, he was alone inside. Because of the blows, he was not strong enough to stand, but he prayed while lying down. And after the prayer, he yelled out, Here I am, Anthony. I do not run from your blows, for even if you give me more, nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. Then he also sang, Though an army should set itself in array against me, my heart shall not be afraid. So then the demons start coming through the walls. You can read all about it in this book if you want to read this book. And they come as these animals, these beasts, you know, like a bear, a lion, a leopard, a snake, different kinds of creatures and scorpions and wolves. And they're, they're roaring and they're howling and they're gnashing their teeth. They're lunging at him and they even strike him and wound him. And we read, and again, with boldness, he said, this is Anthony, if you are able and you did receive authority over me, don't hold back, but attack. But if you are unable, why? When it is vain, do you disturb me? For faith in our Lord is for us a seal and a wall of protection. And suddenly the roof opened and a beam of light came down and all the demons vanished from view and the pain in his body ceased and Anthony asked the big question, quote, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't you appear in the beginning? Is that the question we always ask? So that you could stop my distresses. And a voice came to him, I was here, Anthony, but I waited to watch your struggle. And now, since you persevered and were not defeated, I will be your helper forever, and I will make you famous everywhere. So says the life of Anthony by Athanasius. After this, Anthony decided to go further away. He found an abandoned Roman fort. He said, oh, this will be a really good place to live. 
And so he, he moved into the fort. It was all barricaded in, and nobody could, could get in. It was just him inside, and someone would bring him bread every six months, and they would just drop it in uh, from, a, I think, like throw it over the wall or drop it from above somehow. Over time, Anthony became essentially a celebrity, which is hysterical because, like, he's trying to escape. <laughs> and uh, people are whispering about him in the big cities, and they're saying, did you hear about this Anthony? I heard he fought the demons and, in a tomb, and then he went back, and, you know, they're here. There's all this uh, rumors and gossip about it. So they come out all the way to the fort, and he won't let them in, but they, they, they camp outside, and they're, they're just curious, and, they're, and they could talk to him through the wall. It's, got, like, it's not a solid wall, so they could talk to him through the wall. People there would hear voices, and it was, they would say, Get away from what is ours. What do you have to do with the desert? You cannot endure our treachery. And, and they don't know, like, what are these voices? And so they call to Anthony, and they're like, well, Anthony, what are these voices? And he's like, oh, that's just the demons, man. That's the demons. That's what they do for people that are weak and that are fearful and lack courage. They, they're trying to scare you. And uh, Anthony's friends visited him regularly, and they'd hear him singing. And uh, finally, Anthony emerged after living in the fort for 20 years. And before that, he was in the tomb. And before that, he was just off on his own. And before that, he was training with people. He, Anthony, as it turns out, lived a very long life. And this is the description of what he looked like after 20 years in the fort. Nearly 20 years he spent in this manner pursuing the ascetic life by himself not venturing out and only occasionally being seen by anyone. After this, when many possessed the desire and will to emulate his asceticism, and some of his friends came and tore down and forcefully removed the fortress door, Anthony came forth as though from some shrine. They were amazed to see that his body had maintained his former condition, neither fat from lack of exercise nor emaciated from fasting and combat with demons." but was just as they had known him prior to his withdrawal. The state of his soul was one of purity. He maintained utter equilibrium. Through him, the Lord healed many of those present. He persuaded many to take up the solitary life, and so from then on there were monasteries in the mountains, and the desert was made a city by monks who left their own people and registered themselves for the citizenship in the heavens." All this battling with the devil and demons explains why society regarded this sort of behavior, this sort of activity, as a benefit. Now, if teams of elite Christians are in the desert surrounding your city, and they're out there battling with the demons, demons don't have time to mess with you in the city. Right? Like, there's a, a protection kind of aspect to it. So people in the city, they love the hermits. They consider them spiritual soldiers waging battle on the spiritual plane through extreme asceticism, that's denying themselves pleasure, and Christian spiritual practices like prayer, meditation, singing the Psalms, things like that. And this ensured the well-being of the nearby community. I had mentioned this idea in session number 10 on persecution how both Decius and Diocletian, Roman emperors, decided that it was the Christians who disturbed the Pax Deorum, 
the Pax Deorum, the peace of the gods. So the way ancient Roman religion worked was the gods aren't your friends. They can do bad things to you. So you offer them sacrifices at the proper time, and that's what, the, what they call the cult or the care of the gods. It's not because you love the gods. Nobody loves Mars, the god of war, right? Like, but you fear the gods, and so you offer them, you pay them due respect, and you care for them appropriately, and then they don't mess with you. You don't get a plague. You don't get a famine. You don't get barbarians attacking your borders. That's their mindset, okay? This kind of gets transferred to Christians in Alexandria and the surrounding areas of Egypt where they start thinking to themselves, the monks are out there fighting with these spiritual forces. They're protecting us. It's for the good of our whole society. So it's a very similar kind of idea, but in a different, obviously, religious context. After about five or six years... He works with these other people because they had broken down the door and they're trying to learn from him and he's healing people and he's telling them about the way of life. So about five or six years he works with people and then he's like, you know what, that's enough. And he moves away by himself again on a mountain, even farther away from society. And still he had regular visitors. And uh, the rule of monks to this day, I don't know if I can speak for all monks because I'm certainly not one, but... The rule is, if you are a guest, you are honored. You are received. So Anthony would always receive visitors. In 338, Athanasius, who, as you remember, was the bulldog fighting to convince everyone that the father and uh, and the son were of the same substance. Right? That was his big thing, homoousios. And so he's fighting for that. And so he decides, I'm going to get Anthony and I'm going to get him to support my cause. So he goes and he gets Anthony, and Anthony allegedly supports the Trinity against the Arians in Alexandria because Athanasius keeps getting exiled for bad behavior. So like when he gets exiled, a lot of times he lives in the desert with the monks because the, the government can't touch him because he's living in a hole in the ground somewhere, right? So he had like this weird relationship, like a positive relationship with the Desert Fathers, because he spent a lot of time with them. And so he was able to get Anthony to support his cause in proving that the subordinationists were all wrong. Anthony, of course, went back to his hermitage after that. He lived a long life. I don't know if you noticed from the dates I put up there, but it, it looks like 105 years, which, which I, I think is important for you to, to understand the genre of literature called hagiography. Hagiography is writings about the saints. You should not always take everything literally or as fact. Okay, they tend to embellish, tell legendary stories, right? So I think you have to be a little careful. Who knows what Anthony really did, the historical Anthony? I'm not really going to get into that. It's not so much important to me what the real person did as much as what this book about his life did in convincing so many others to say, oh, I want to be like Anthony when I grow up. I want to go live in a cave and starve myself and not sleep very much and just fight the demons. That sounds awesome, right? So like a lot of people got inspired and they wanted to do this. One such person was Pacomius the Great. Pacomius 
was a man who was born in Thebes, Egypt, to pagan parents. He converted and was baptized to Christianity in the year 314, and he studied for seven years with a hermit in the same general region as Anthony at the same time Anthony was out doing that. He imitated Anthony's practices, and he innovated, and what he did was he decided what we really need is a group of hermits who are together and not alone. And he did this for the hermits who either for physical reasons or mental reasons just couldn't handle living alone day in and day out. And this was called Cenobitic Monasticism from the words kinos, vios, uh, which is the, the Greek words that means common life. So if you were living in community as a monk, you were called a Cenobite monk as opposed to a Eremite monk, where you're living alone, or Anchorite. So, Pacomius starts putting together monasteries. He's not the only one, but he's the one that really kind of franchises the monastery idea and really develops it. The idea for Pacomius was that all members of the monastery had to hold their possessions in common. No private property was allowed. It would be all men or all women. No co-ed monasteries allowed. It was led by an abbot or an abbess. That's the name of the leader of the monastery. And uh, that's from the word Abba, which is the word for father in Aramaic. The first monastery was in Egypt, and over a hundred people lived with Pacomius in that first monastery. And so he ended up founding nine monasteries uh, during his lifetime. Like I said, he franchised it. I mean, he just like figured out how to do it. He's like, all right, let's set the next one up. Let's set the next one up. Let's set the next one up. He had a rule. By a rule, I don't mean like a single rule. I mean a list of rules. That's called the rule of Pacomius on how to live. And others copied his model so that by his death, there were 3,000 monasteries approximately in the desert of Egypt. Can you imagine this? All of these people. These are, these are not normal people. These are people that are saying, you know what? I want to follow Christ to the maximum. I, I'm, I don't want this city Christianity. Let me, go, let me go to the desert where I can just fast and pray and not sleep and not have any fun. It's going to be great. <laughs> these are elite Christians. And it was super popular. Within a generation after this, there would be 7,000 monasteries in the desert of Egypt, and this thing just took off. People were leaving the empire. And my theory on it is that partly it's because of the Constantinian shift. that The church had become flooded, because this is right around the same period when Constantine converts during the lifetime of Pacomius here. And lots of people start joining the church, lots of converts, but like, how committed are they really? And there are some people who are saying, you know what? I really want to go the full degree and be very rigorous with my faith. So I think that's, that plays into it as well. And then this spread outside of Egypt to the region of the Judean desert, which if you've ever been to modern Israel in the southern part, it's a good place to be a hermit, I guess, if you can find water. Also in Syria, and eventually even it spread to Europe. 
So he was an abbot for 40 years, and then he died of a plague. I bet, <laughs> but in the end, he's thinking to himself, man, I should have just stayed as an anchorite, just as a loan, because then I wouldn't have got the plague from whoever gave it to him. Just think of our own recent plague and you know, how people wanted to be isolated and separate, right? All right, then we move to Basil of Caesarea, who lived from 329 to 379. Uh, born to a wealthy Christian family, educated by his grandmother, influenced by a man named Macrina, who was a student of Gregory Thaumaturgus, who was a student of origin of Alexandria. I know you don't know all those names, but my point is he was an originist. That's somebody that believes in the, the sort of take or systematic theology of origin of Alexandria. So he was definitely of that school. In fact, he helped to publish the writings of Origen in a book called the Philokalia. He's close friends with the two Gregories. Well, one of them was his brother. Um, so you have Gregory of Nazianzus, and then you have Gregory of Nyssa. So all three together are the three Cappadocians, if you recall that from our session on the Trinity controversy. So the three Cappadocians worked together to develop basically bringing in the Holy Spirit and some of the technical language for the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about today with Basil. But he was involved with that. He was, also, he was also really good at philanthropy and caring for the needy. Basil in particular was, was known for that. He was exceptional. So he, like I said, he's very wealthy, very educated, and he decides... I'm going to give it all away to the poor. He gives it all away to the poor, and he also stays in the city. And he's like, you know what? We really need to help these people. And starts developing institutions, as we'll see in a moment. But before he did that, he traveled to Egypt, because that's where you go. That's where the action is. That's where all these monks are. Like, what's going on over there? Let's meet up with Pacomius and see what he's doing. And so he... He trained with a hermit, and he came back to Caesarea. Now, he's, he's not in the Caesarea near Israel. He's in the Caesarea in modern-day Turkey. It's the Caesarea of Cappadocia. It's the region of Turkey. Of course, it wasn't called Turkey in the ancient times. And so he trains in Egypt and then brings this monastic ideal back with him to Caesarea of Cappadocia, and he starts developing monasteries in the city. This is a totally new idea at the time. So the monks maintained monasteries, orphanages, hospices, and hostels. So these are where these institutions started coming in because of Basil the Great, or Basil of Caesarea, doing this. And so another thing he did is he modified the austere practices of the Egyptian monks and said, you know, we're city folks. We need to just like take it down a notch. Made it a little bit more bearable, I think. He coordinated duties of work and prayer, and he struck a balance. And the rule of Basil became the standard in the Greek-speaking East. I think to this day, it's even still considered a standard for how to, how to be in a monastery, especially in a city monastery. Crazy thing, though, he died in his 40s due to a liver disease, probably from ascetic living probably from denying himself too much, and he had organ failure and died. 
We'll come back to that in our next session with somebody else. All right, on to our last and most influential, I don't know if he's more influential than Anthony the Great, but neck and neck is uh, Benedict of Nursia, who lived from 480 to 547. So this is really at the tail end of our period. I told you we're covering only the first 500 years. I might be cheating a little bit by getting it to Benedict here. But you just got to know about him. So his early life, he was the son of a wealthy Roman noble of Nursia. At 19 or 20, he fell in love. And she broke his heart. So he said, I'll be a, a hermit. I'll go live in a cave. It sounds like a Netflix special, right? I mean, it's like... He gave up his career as a Roman noble and became a hermit for three years. Lived out in the cave for three years, bless his heart. You know, licking his wounds, praying, trying to find his satisfaction in God. Probably not a terrible way to deal with it compared to like the way most people deal with breakups, right? He was influenced by Basil of Caesarea's rule. He was just living out there by himself, and one day the abbot of a nearby monastery died. And so the people there, the brothers there said, hey, Benedict, would you be our abbot? So he did. He came on board and he uh, took charge, but it didn't work out. And uh, the details are real sketchy. But uh, somehow or other, the brothers there decided to kill him. And <laughs> which is like kind of a, an unexpected twist in the story. But they tried to poison him. I don't remember exactly how it worked out, but somehow or other, there was like a, a way that he w avoided it and he, he wasn't poisoned. Uh, but he did leave that monastery because <laughs> you don't want to be living with, in community with people trying to kill you. It's just, you're not going to be living that long. So he left and many flocked to him and he built his own monastery. And he founded actually 12 communities about 40 miles east of Rome. So now he's in Europe. So we started in Egypt, then we moved straight north. We're in Turkey, still considered the east but now we're way over here in the west in Rome and just 40 miles outside of Rome. And we have monasteries developing there even before Benedict. But Benedict really becomes the superstar because he standardizes the rule. He became the standard for monasteries in the west, whereas Basil was the standard for monasteries in the east. So he, he wrote a book called The Rule of St. Benedict. I want to go through that with you and explain how monastic life worked. Because I'm just utterly fascinated by it. And I think you'll see that from Anthony's early extreme asceticism, by the time we get to Benedict and the, and the brothers in the 6th century, I mean, yes, it's still extreme, but it's like, it was way toned down. They're allowed vegetables. You know, like, it's not just bread and salt. So anyhow, let me, let me just kind of cruise through this with you and see if we can't just imagine ourselves what it would be like to live in a Benedictine monastery in the 520s and the 530s in a place, you know, just 40 miles outside of Rome. So first up is the abbot. The abbot is the leader. The abbot has authority. You submit to the abbot. You don't want to live there? Fine. Don't live there. But if you're going to live there, you have to submit to the abbot. He holds the place of Christ in the monastery. That's rule number two. This is uh, from this, well, I don't know if it's rule number two, but like chapter two of the book, The Rule of St. Benedict. 
He says, for upright and perceptive men, his first and second warnings should be verbal. But those who are evil or stubborn, arrogant or disobedient, he can curb only by blows or some other physical punishment at the first offense. Just give you a sense of the power of this abbot and the submission of the brothers or the sisters, if it's an abbess and you're talking about a female monastery. That person at the top has total authority. That person can beat you if they deem it's appropriate. Here's another little statement about it from uh, 71, chapter 71. He says, If a monk is reproved in any way by his abbot or by one of his seniors, even for some very small matter, or if he gets the impression that one of his seniors is angry or disturbed with him, however slightly, he must then and there, without delay, cast himself on the ground at the other's feet to make satisfaction and lie there until the disturbance is calmed by a blessing. Anyone who refuses to do this should be subject to corporal punishment, or if he is stubborn, should be expelled from the monastery. There is no one that joins the Benedictine monastery that doesn't know all the rules first. And this is in the rule book that you are low and you need to get low if somebody's upset with you. You literally grovel at their feet. And it's interesting because in uh, chapter 3, it says that the abbot should make decisions in community. It should bring everyone together. And it even says that the Lord often reveals what is better to the younger. There's a lot of elder respect, I'm going to show you in a minute, but like there was a place for the younger to speak in appropriate ways and to have their voices heard. All right, so let me, let me give you the structure. You've got the abbot at the top, the prior was somebody appointed by the abbot to serve as like an assistant. Then you had deans. A dean was in charge of every 10 monks. So if it was a very large monastery, you have multiple deans, but it's sort of like a divide and conquer strategy. Then you have these other ones here, kind of like special jobs. They're not like ranks, really. A cellarer is the person that manages the cellar, as you might imagine. This is the person in charge of provisions, the person who hands out the utensils to the kitchen workers, kind of like the kitchen captain. They get a new one every week. That person prepares the food and washes the dishes. And so the cellarer is the continuity person, whereas the kitchen workers rotate in and out every week. The whole idea of a monastery is to be self-sufficient. You do not want to be catering or going out to eat you're not even allowed to leave the walls of the monastery without special permission. You're supposed to stay in. Then you have the porter. This is just somebody that answers the door, as you might imagine. And about the porter, they say, should be a sensible old man who knows how to take a message and deliver a reply and whose age keeps him from roaming about. As we get older, it's harder to walk. So <laughs> maybe that's... The concern, because you, he's the person in charge of the door. He could go outside, and you don't want to go outside. These are like compounds with walls, right? You get, you get me? So the, the porter would have a room near the entrance and intercept visitors, and when he heard a knock at the door, he would say, Thanks be to God! Or, Your blessing, please. Those are his two responses, according to the rule. And then you had regular monks. For regular monks, renunciation was everything. 
You renounce your status, your possessions, your dignity. Everything is renounced. It's, monks are people who, who say, I want to be humble so that I can be blessed by God. Right? Blessed are the humble, Jesus said. Right? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble. It's very similar to the word meek. They lived in extreme asceticism. Well, maybe not extreme, but they, they lived in asceticism. The rule says, do not pamper yourself, but love fasting. It goes on, refrain from too much eating or sleeping and from laziness. Do not grumble or speak ill of others. Day by day, remind yourself that you are going to die. As soon as wrongful thoughts come into your heart, dash them against Christ and disclose them to your spiritual father. Prefer moderation in speech and speak no foolish chatter, nothing just to provoke laughter. Do not love immoderate or boisterous laughter. Listen, <laughs> sorry, I just think it's hysterical that they, they hate on laughter. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was a joyful person. Don't get me started. Back to the reading. Listen readily to holy reading and devote yourself often to prayer. Every day with tears and sighs, confess your past sins to God in prayer. Do not gratify the promptings of the flesh. Hate the urgings of self-will. Obey the orders of the abbot unreservedly. Sort of like if you're going to find the boogeyman here, it's self-will. That's what you're trying to destroy. As for clothing, they were given two cowls and two tunics and a belt of cords, along with a pair of sandals and a pair of shoes. And they're all issued them by the abbot, and they all look the same. And it's supposed to be coarse material so that it wasn't too comfortable. Anything else they needed, they can ask the abbot. So they could get a, I have a list here of all the stuff they could get. There's no smartphone on here. Spoiler alert. They could get a knife, and they were instructed not to wear their knife in bed because they could cut themselves. So there's a pro tip for you. If you have a knife, take it off when you uh, sleep at night. He had a knife, a stylus, a needle, a handkerchief, and writing tablets. Those are all the stuff they could ask for. As far as obedience goes, they should have unhesitating obedience. Like immediate, instantaneous, I'm not going to think about it, I'm just going to obey. That was the mindset that they adopted. Silence. So important is silence, Benedict says, that permission to speak should seldom be granted, even to mature disciples. We absolutely condemn in all places any vulgarity and gossip and talk leading to laughter. A monk, this is, that was six, this is seven. A monk controls his tongue and remains silent, not speaking unless asked a question. So what do you think? It must have been a pretty quiet place. There could be talking, but only for a certain purpose. You know, if you needed something, you could ask. It wasn't a vow of silence or anything like that, but like silence was the default while they were together, except during worship. And worship happened a lot. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Another thing about the, the monks is that they had to always keep their heads down and their eyes down. Whether they're standing or sitting, you're always adopting a humble posture and always do what is better for someone else. That was their motto. If there was going to be a problem, somebody disobeyed, somebody stepped out of line, somebody 
talked or laughed, told a joke. Uh, you could get punished. You could get verbally punished. Uh, you could get physically beaten. And then you could also get excommunicated. If you're excommunicated, though, it's not like you're cast out. It just means you're not allowed to participate in worship. You have to instead prostrate yourself on the ground in front of all the brothers the whole time. And then the same thing for during meals. So you're like basically, so long as you're under excommunication, you're there, but you're just like lying out on the ground in penance until the abbot says, okay, that's enough. You can rejoin us now. The ranking was determined, there was ranking. It was not determined by your status, by how much wealth you had before coming in, or by your age. It was determined by when you entered the monastery. So you could be an old person that enters the monastery and you're at a low rank because somebody else was there for years before you, even though they're younger. However, they did believe that younger monks should call their elders venerable father, whereas the elders would call the youngers brother. There was a disparity there. There was respect there. The abbot would be called abbot or lord. When an older monk comes by, the younger rises and offers him a seat and does not presume to sit down unless the older bids him. That's number 63. The monastery was self-contained. I mentioned that. They had its own water source, its own mill, its own garden, its own craft materials. But they would trade with the outside world. And there, there was allowances to go outside. To become a monk, there's this long, elaborate process, as you would imagine, right? They're called a novitiate. And if you're a novitiate, then the first thing they tell you is all the hardships of joining. Because they don't want weak sauce people. They want people that are gung-ho, committed, ready to do anything. So after two months, they read the whole rule to them. And then again, after six months, after another six months, and then again, after another four months. So, they, so there's no, oh, I didn't realize that was the way it is for, for the new. By the time you actually join, you've heard it over and over again. You've participated in the rhythm of the day. You know what's going on. And you have to promise to observe everything and every command given. You can't leave the monastery ever again. That's it. You're making a lifetime commitment. Then the novitiate would come before the community of the brothers or the sisters if it's a female monastery. Benedict was obviously working with men. And you would make promises to the community. And then you'd write up a document and you'd sign it. And if you were illiterate, somebody else would write up the document and you'd make your mark on it. And that was considered a contract that you were going to honor. Now, sometimes children would be given to the monastery by parents. Sometimes wealthy parents would give their children to the monastery. Sometimes poor parents would give their children to the monastery to be raised as monks. And they knew that they would be taken care of, they would be fed, they would have spiritual discipline. And so it was something that happened it has happened all along throughout this. And right from the beginning, Benedict has rules in there for them. And it was sort of like a commune mindset where anyone would parent the, the young boys that were there. As far as guests, because I said that you can receive a guest in a monastery, he writes, all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. Wow, that's incredible. 
All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure by a bow of the head or complete prostration of the body. Christ is to be adored because he is indeed welcomed in them. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims because in them particularly Christ is received. So we should all go visit monasteries. Like, I don't know if they all work this way, but this is the Benedictine monasteries. Like, you treat it like gold. They have a separate kitchen for the guests. They have quarters set up for the guests with more comfortable bedding than you know, the brothers like to sleep on. And you know, they just treated you like gold until you left. Unless you wanted to join, in which case then they treat you like you have to follow all the rules, right? <laughs> all right, a couple more quick things. Let me tell you about the daily structure. At one point, Benedict says, you know, seven's a really great number. Seven, we should have seven worship services every day. And he says, and then there should be an eighth one, like in the middle of the night. And uh, so this is, uh, I, start, <laughs> oh, I just love these guys. Uh, I'm going to start you with the 3 a.m. service. It's called Vigils. And uh, it happens sometime um, between midnight and when the sun rises. It's about 3 a.m. And this is just a quick description of what the service was like, what the worship service was like. The following order, he says, is observed. Psalm 3 with glory be to the Father, Psalm 94 with a refrain, or at least chanted, an Ambrosian hymn, then six psalms with refrain. After the psalmody, a versicle is said, and the abbot gives a blessing. When all are seated on the benches, the brothers in turn read three sections from the book on the lectern. After each reading, a responsory is sung. Glory be to the Father is not sung after the first two responsories, but only after the third reading. As soon as the cantor begins to sing, Glory to the Father, let all the monks rise from their seats. When these three readings and their responsories have been finished, the remaining six psalms are sung with an Alleluia refrain. This ended there follow a reading from the Apostle recited by heart as a versicle and the litany, that is, Lord have mercy. And so vigils are concluded. Lengthy service. We're not talking about a 20-minute sing a song, pray a prayer, read a scripture. We're talking about you know, elaborate and chanting and singing and reading and just a lot of community worship. And then they were allowed a short break to attend to nature's needs. And then they jumped right into the sunrise service called Lauds, L-A-U-D-S, for a whole other service. And then after that, they'd have a few hours to work until lunch. There is no breakfast. They totally got on board with the intermittent fasting. No breakfast, work, and then you have lunch, and then you have another worship service. And they're just like these punctuated moments throughout the day where they'd all come together and they'd sing and they'd read scripture. For work, Benedict says, when they live by the labor of their hands, as our fathers and the apostles did, then they are really monks. So this was something he emphasized and really became part of the tradition that work was really important, except on Sunday. On Sunday, everyone just engaged in reading. You don't need to work on Sunday. The work was given to those who can't read. So work wasn't forbidden. If you can't read... You can't read all day. You've got to do something. Laziness is bad. So they were given some work to do. 
And then for eating, they had lunch and dinner. They sit together. Someone reads while they're eating, by the way. When it comes to wine, this was, I thought this was absolutely hysterical. He says, we read that monks should not drink wine at all. But since the monks of our day cannot be convinced of this, let us at least agree to drink moderately and not to the point of excess, for wine makes even wise men go astray. I mean, we're, we're a long way from Brother Anthony in the desert, out there with the scorpions, eating stale bread. He's lucky, it's a little salt from the sweat of his brow, right? And now we're in the monastery, and, you know, everything's prepared for you by whoever, whatever brothers are on duty. And, you know, there's wine, and there's bread, there's vegetables. <laughs> oh, boy. As far as sleeping goes, you have to wear your clothes to sleep. Remember, you have two, so... You're good. You're golden. All sleep in one place, the younger interspersed with the seniors, and a lamp is kept burning all night. Imagine sleeping in the same room as a dozen or more people with a light on, snoring. No mention of demons, though. I'm fascinated by that. So I've read through the entire rule of St. Benedict. I didn't see one, not one, mention of a demon or fighting with the devil. So with Anthony early on, that's the thing. That's like the main thing of what he's doing. By the time we get to the 6th century, it's just sort of like, all right, here are all the rules, and you have to be very humble, and this is how we do our services, but there's no, there's no sense of like, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this spiritual thing. So things have changed. Uh, as it turns out, the rule of Benedict is still in use today. As of 2020... There were 6,802 Benedictine monks on planet Earth. Let's review. Although Anthony the Great was not the first hermit, he became the father of all monks. Anthony practiced extreme isolation and asceticism while battling demons in the African desert. Many found Anthony's lifestyle attractive and sought him out, no matter how far away he was. Nearby villages and cities saw the desert fathers and mothers' battles with spirits as a benefit to society. Pacomius wrote a rule of community life and started several monasteries, becoming the founder of Cenobitic monasticism. Basil of Caesarea learned from Pacomius' monasticism and brought it to Cappadocia. Basil wrote a less austere rule than Pacomius's and pioneered having monasteries in populated areas that ran orphanages, hospices, and hostels. Benedict of Nursia learned from Basil's rule and developed his own. Basil's rule held sway in the Greek-speaking East, and Benedict's rule dominated the Latin-speaking West. And these become two separate denominations, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox. They weren't yet, but they would be. Benedict's communities emphasized renunciation, humility, and obedience, as well as eight services per day, working through all 150 psalms every single week. Uh, I have a little quote for you on that. Benedict says, look, you know, our ancestors, the fathers who came before us and the mothers who came before us, he said, they will go through 150 psalms in a day. I think we can get through it in a week. So they would literally go through all 150 psalms every week in their services. Isn't that incredible? 
Next time, we'll look at two of the most influential Christians of the, the whole period of the 4th and 5th century. And they were heavily influenced by this monastic movement. This was just understood by them to be really a supreme way to live, considered to be the ideal for superstar Christians. They were Jerome and Augustine. We'll consider their lives and contributions next time as we continue in our journey through early church history. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 497, Monasticism from Anthony to Benedict, and leave your comments there. On our last episode, Suzanne wrote in asking about John Chrysostom, and she wanted to know if I had done any work on him or had any podcasts on him. And as it turns out, I do cover John Chrysostom and his tragic demise in episode 21 of this class. Uh, And if you really want to, you can skip ahead and access this lecture on YouTube, or it'll be out on the podcast in about six weeks. I don't do very much with John Chrysostom in the early church history class, other than talk about how he got outmaneuvered in Constantinople and how he died. Now, many of his sermons do survive, so you can get a fairly good sense of the man, and I've heard they're generally very good, though he did preach a horrifying series called Against the Jews that was filled with venom, which I would not recommend for edification, but good luck in your research. Rick wrote in on the last episode about uh, Paul of Samosata, he says, this has been an excellent series, Sean, you pack a lot of information into every lesson. Regarding Paul of Samosata, is there a free online copy of the dissertation by Robert Sample, which you cited? Well, thanks for saying that, Rick. Uh, It's very encouraging to hear. I do try to pack a lot into each of these different lectures because there's so much to say, and there's so much material to cover, and I'm trying to be thorough but brief at the same time, and that's kind of a weird space to be in. So Rick is asking about how to get hold of the dissertation Well, let me just say a couple things about Robert Lynn Sample and his dissertation. I've tried really hard to get a hold of Robert Sample, and I paid the little fee online to get the person's information. Even before that, I searched the internet every which way I could for the man. Uh, He doesn't seem to have a digital presence whatsoever. I called the numbers that the directory provided after I paid the five bucks or whatever it was, They were all other people, and they offered up a physical address, which I even snail mailed, uh, just to get in touch with this guy, because this dissertation is really quite remarkable. And, you know, it's interesting, too, his dissertation is from the year 1977. Uh, So bottom line is, it's very possible that Dr. Sample is no longer with us. His dissertation is absolutely masterful. Uh, he, he really does catalog all the relevant sources, at least that were known in the year 1977, about Paul of Samosata. Either he translates himself or he uses other translations to bring them into English, which is great, and really shows that Paul was not an adoptionist, which is the standard smear campaign used against biblical Unitarians in the early years of Christianity, uh, and that he really did believe that... Jesus was Messiah, 
but that uh, he did not pre-exist. So it's a really important scholarly contribution, and sadly, it's locked away at Northwestern. You can't even look at it unless you're a student there. And it's also behind this other website called ProQuest, which for a fee of $41, uh, you can get a PDF of the dissertation. Or you, you never know. It could be on Scribd, uh, one of these kind of websites. If you're familiar with that, that's S-C-R-I-B-D, uh, where you can find lots of uploaded documents. If you search for Robert Sample, that's his name, and Messiah as Prophet, which is the title of the dissertation, you may be able to find something that way. So good luck to you on that, Rick. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.